Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Good morning. You guys having fun yet? Amen. Well, I'm excited to be with you as we're going through our sevenfold focus, our, our series on the vision that God has for our church. I want to give a shout out to all the V-Lifers watching online. We want to just say welcome to you as well, as well as anyone else that is new here today. I see some, uh, some new faces. We believe everyone matters to God, so you matter. And you're not here by chance. There's a reason God brought you here today. And we pray, and our prayer is for you, that you have a special blessing on your life um, because of gathering with us today. Um, If you have not been with us over the last few weeks going through our sevenfold focus uh, vision series, I encourage you to uh, catch up uh, either by going onto our website, blchurch.tv, forward slash messages online, Facebook, YouTube, or subscribing to our podcast to hear the messages there. Uh, It's important that as we're growing as a church, as we're moving forward together as a church, we're all not just hearing but also seeing the same things. And and part of the teaching that we do is to uh, release what God is doing, where he's leading, what he's leading us to do, so that we're all believing for and praying and pressing into the same things. And I believe that God has something very special for our church. Last year was a banner year. Amidst all the craziness, God moved in a powerful way. And I believe in 2021, the best is yet to come. Amen? Just so happens that rhymes. So we're going to pun that to death. So, um, you know, stick with me. But uh, we we began talking about our sevenfold focus. And week one, we talked about our focus of prayer, that prayer is really the lifeblood of not just a believer in Christ, but of any church that wants to do anything significant in the kingdom of God Prayer is what fuels and what drives that. Second week, we talked about the prophetic word, how God is still speaking today. He's given us revelation in his word, the Bible. That's the foundation for our faith. But the Holy Spirit lives in us to guide us each and every day. It's not Christianity. It's not just an intellectual faith where we just decide we're going to believe some things. This is a living, breathing relationship we can have with Almighty God, the creator of of the universe and the way God speaks through the Holy Spirit is not just to, to tell us when we're messing up and help us to avoid trouble, but He gives us counsel on things that we're facing. He gives us direction. He prophesies into our lives what God has in store for us and things that He's calling us to do, so that not only can we fulfill the great purpose He has for our lives, but we can give God glory with everything we are. It's such an amazing relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. And last week, we talked about this, this call to fearless worship and fearless praise. They're, they're really, to, to take that next level, that next step in our spiritual journey, we have to get to a, the place where we care less and less about what man thinks of us and more and more about what God thinks of us. John the Baptist, when he was doing his ministry, as Jesus was starting on the scene, his disciples came kind of, upset that Jesus was taking his followers away and and like you know his following's growing and yours is shrinking and John says he must increase and I must decrease the point of any life is not to become greater and greater in your own eyes it's to become greater and greater in his eyes and the way we do that is by making him famous caring about what he says trusting in his word and his promises and so these are the the three focuses we've attacked or discussed up until this point and and before we get into the the focus for today i want to kind of look at and recall your memory to really jesus's life and ministry because everything we do is patterned after jesus right we're called to be fishers of men right to follow christ to do as he has done matter of fact the word christian means to be christ-like It means to pattern your life after Jesus. So we need to look at Jesus' life and see really what he was like and what he did to inform us about what our lives and our ministry is supposed to be like. And before Jesus began his ministry, most everyone thinks about Jesus, about his miracle power. Wouldn't you say that, like walking on the water? How cool would that be? I mean, there are a lot of movies that kind of depict 
Jesus walking on the water. And uh, I was thinking about this this week as, as the Israelites, they were crossing the Red Sea, right? The waters part and they walk on dry ground. Jesus didn't even bother with the sea. He just walked right on top of it. You know, that, that's how cool our God is. Like, he, he's a man. You know, he's like, I don't part with the water. I'm going to walk on it. You know, I'm going to do this. So Jesus did some pretty awesome things. But before he healed the sick, before he uh, opened blind eyes, before he did any miracles at all, even before he began to teach, he went to John as he was baptizing in the Jordan River, and he went and was baptized by John. And for Jesus, what this symbolized is that he is now in this place where he is completely dying to himself and he is rising up out of the water completely and utterly devoted to God. This, this was his life. He was no longer living life as a normal human being any longer. From this point on, he was completely dying to who he was born into the earth and he was rising again out of the water completely devoted to God. And for us, as we are baptized, after we place our faith and trust in Jesus, when we are baptized, it symbolizes dying to our sinful nature, our old lives, and rising together to new life in Jesus Christ. To live as he lived, to walk as he walked, to do as he did. This is what baptism represents, becoming a new creation. And at the moment Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on the Lord in the form of a dove, he descends on him, fills him in fullness. Now, this doesn't mean that when the Spirit fell on him, Jesus started to become God. Jesus was always God. In Philippians 2, it says that he left heaven and became the form of a man. He humbled himself, and he really limited himself in the form of a human being so he could come and suffer and die on the cross. So Jesus doesn't become, a man, uh, become God at his baptism, what happens is that the power of God that he, he with, withheld himself from came and anointed him for a purpose, for power. So now Jesus is anointed with the power of God, filled with the Spirit, prior to doing any of the miracles, any of the teaching, any ministry of any kind. And as soon as this moment happens, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, here's what the Scripture says says, immediately, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here, you, you've waited your whole life for this moment. I'm going to get the blessing. I'm going to get the power of God. Now it's upon me. Now I'm ready to go. But instead of going to do the miracles, he goes to die to himself. Forty days of fasting and prayer in the desert. We're talking coming to the point of death in his life. Completely devoid of strength or any sustenance, his complete reliance at that point was on the power and presence of God. And while he's in the desert, he endures three particular attacks from the enemy. The enemy comes to, to tempt and to try and to test him. We're not going to go into those attacks today, but the core of every attack the enemy lays on him is a, an attack on the word of God, his trust in the word, and his identity in who God said he was. At his baptism, the voice from heaven said, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And every attack the enemy levied, it was, Did God really say that? Or are you sure you are the son of God? Every attack was centered around those two basic things. The enemy, when he comes against us, if he can get us to doubt the word or doubt who we are in Jesus, he then has leverage over our lives. And this is what came for the Lord. But yet Jesus was victorious. Jesus victoriously overcame these temptations. And it says the devil left him. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it describes what Jesus' ministry was like from that point on. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. As soon as Jesus comes out of the desert, it's like, it's game on. It's game on. You thought you had me when I was weak, but no, I had you. And now I'm coming. I'm coming. And he went to do good and free those who are oppressed by the devil. He was anointed. Now, he wasn't able to do good and heal those oppressed by the devil because he weathered the temptations. 
Many of us, we often think about that. Well, it's because he, he beat the devil in the desert. That's why he could go. No, he beat the devil in the desert because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and his complete reliance on the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus in the desert, as he lowered himself in his humanity, coming to the brink of death and weathering these attacks, he discovers something very important, and it's a lesson that is left here in Scripture for each one of us who are followers of Jesus that God wants us to learn that apart from God, we can do nothing. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Our lives, our very next breath, depends on the presence, power, and grace of Almighty God. Man doesn't live by bread alone. And this shift is what God desires for each and every one of us, to stop living our lives ignorant of his will, his word, the things that he's promised, the things that he said. He wants us to have this shift that comes into alignment with his word from fully believing what the world says and doubting what God says to fully believing what God says and doubting what the world says. This is what God wants to shift in us. And this is really key in hosting the presence of the Lord. The Spirit's been poured out. He's available to all who believe. Jesus said, how much more would the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to any who ask? The Holy Spirit's available to all who ask, all who believe in Jesus Christ. And the key to hosting his presence and not only living this Christian life and fulfilling the purpose of God in our life is how dependent, how desperate we are for the presence of God. For the presence. We dive into his word. We meditate on his word. We hide it in our hearts. The word says, that not only will we be able to abstain from sin and temptation, from falling into the traps of the enemy, but we'll also see those traps a million miles away. The focus of our worship won't be worshiping the things of this world. It'll be where it is due. And in true heartfelt desperation, in the act of fearless praise, we will call down the presence of God and dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. To live in the safety of his arms, his everlasting arms. And our lives will become more and more aligned with his word as we were focused on his word. And we will stifle the God's voice less and less. We'll stifle his power in us less and less as we see more and more of what God can do and wants to do among us as we align ourselves with his word and become passionate for his presence. You know, there are things when we think about being part of a church, when we think about building a ministry, there are things that we want to see God do. Wouldn't it be awesome to see this place filled one day? Wouldn't it be awesome to see 50 hands in one service accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Wouldn't it be awesome to see someone in a wheelchair bound their entire life get up and walk? There are things that we want to see that we would think that'd be awesome if we could see that. But it's not going to happen because these types of things, the things that happen in the presence of God, it hinges on our desperation and dependence on the presence of the Lord. Our desperation in prayer, our desperation in worship, and our dependence on his word and his voice. His written word and his prophetic word. So until we learn to host his presence well, we won't be ready to engage in spiritual battle like the world. And this is why I believe that these three... Praise, prayer, and prophetic are the first phase because God wants to train us well so that when we move into phase two, we can fight well. And when we learn to be desperate in prayer and praise and dependent on his word, we'll be in prime place to go healing and healing all who are oppressed by the devil. And this brings us to phase two of our ministry. Phase two and focus four of this sevenfold focus vision, the Focus four is the focus of deliverance. Somebody say deliverance. It's deliverance. And when we think about deliverance, we think about spiritual warfare, and this is the nature of the Christian life in, in many respects as we're talking about uh, following Christ. In this phase, I believe what God is speaking to us as being a place of deliverance is that I felt the Lord was saying he wanted us to create a center for hope 
and restoration, training the body of Christ to discern and stand against the enemy's schemes. There are many things the enemy's been able to do uncontested because believers are, one, not aware of his schemes, two, not aware of his existence, and three, aren't equipped to handle when they become aware and the realization that he exists. There are things that we miss. There are things that we continue to struggle with because we're just unaware of the way the enemy works in the world, and he's been able to do a number on the church. And so I believe God's vision for our ministry in this church is not simply we to be a house of prayer and worship, but to be a center where people who are struggling can find hope and be discipled into a fully developed follower of Jesus Christ, an armor-bearing, sword-slinging warrior for the Lord. In Romans 8, 35-37, Paul says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Doesn't mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. Think of it. Jesus was on the brink of death in the desert as he's fasting for 40 days dependent on the Lord. Does that mean God loved him less? No. Just because we have trial and tribulation in this life doesn't mean God loves us less. Here's what he says in verse 36. He says, as the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, all what? All the destitution, all the hungry, all the persecution, all the danger, all the threats. Despite all these things, what's that say? Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Not just a little bit of victory. Overwhelming victory. Overwhelming victory. This is like going to the Super Bowl and winning a thousand to nothing. It's overwhelming what God has planned for us, what God has in store for us, what God has given us. As believers, as we learn the promises of God, grow in faith, walk in confidence in our identity in Christ, no matter what we face in this life, overwhelming victory is ours through Jesus Christ. What was meant to crush us cannot shake us. What was meant to shake us cannot overtake us. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Imagine a people who are bold in faith and did not fear. Imagine a people who persevere through every circumstance. Imagine a people who love God first, above all things, who depend on the power and love of God. Imagine the things we will see and the realms of glory God will show us when we become like this. This is what I believe God has in store for us. He's teaching us to pursue his presence, to hear his voice, to steward these gifts that we might be built up and strengthened for the work he has ahead of us. And this is the pattern we see in Christ. We empty ourselves, we be filled, and then we become dangerous to the enemy. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 18, we get a glimpse of what this anointing on Jesus was. He's before the religious leaders, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, quoting a passage of scripture that is really revealing the Messiah, what the Messiah would do, and what he's come to do. This is what many call the mantle of the Messiah, and, and revealing what his ministry would be like. And here's what he proclaims to these religious leaders about what his mission is on the earth. In Luke 4:18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach, what's that word? To preach deliverance to who? To the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them who are bruised. Jesus says, I've been anointed with the Spirit not to be a great public speaker. I've come to do more than just teach. I've come to heal the brokenhearted and to walk in deliverance, to set the captive free, to open the eyes of the blind, and to open prison doors to those who are bruised. In this passage, he reveals that this is what the ministry of the kingdom will entail. It's a ministry of deliverance. The Israelites thought Messiah was going to come and deliver them from their foreign occupiers, the rulers that were dominating the land, that the Messiah was going to come free them from their enemies, and they would be able to rule uh, for all time in peace and prosperity. But this is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've come to do battle, but not against kings of this earth. 
that are done to the principalities of the unseen realm. And there are three levels of deliverance in the focus of Jesus' ministry that I want to look at today. The three areas really are the delivering the captive, delivering the blind, and delivering the bruised. For us to really get our minds around what this ministry that he's passed on to us entails. We're going to look at these three areas. The first is the captive. Somebody say the captive. Make sure you're paying attention. The captive. What is a captive? A captive is somebody who is held without their own permission. It's like being kidnapped, right? You, you're captured. You're, you're on a fishing vessel, and pirates come and take your boats over. Now you're a captive. You're, you're in war, and the enemy springs a trap, and you're now a prisoner of war. You're a captive. These are people who are held without their own permission. And Jesus knew, and what we see today, that there are many people who are battling spiritual oppression in many levels, many of which who are battling issues and things in their lives, not through their own sin, but through the decisions and sins of other people. We know from Scripture that when we step out of the will of God and we do something that that God has said not to do or we don't do something God has said to do, the Bible calls that sin. And any time we sin, we open the door for the enemy to come in and gain authority in our lives. It, we call these doorways. And there have been many doorways to devastation opened in the lives in families through adultery, abuse, poverty, victimization, betrayal, and all manner of brokenness. Scripture clearly reveals to us that these doorways hand authority to the enemy. And he's not an enemy that comes to you uh, and just like springs, like says, surprise, here I am. I'm the enemy. I'm coming for you. The enemy doesn't do that. The Bible says that he was the most subtle of all that was created. He sneaks in and he works through deception to get you to make decisions and think thoughts and believe belief systems that open the door to his authority in your life. And when you open these doors, it opens the door to oppression. And now when we look at the oppression that we deal with, we, if we open these doorways in our own lives, we can then pass this oppression on to the next generation. The Bible calls this generational sins. Have you ever noticed, like, in a family, often it won't be just one, like, couple in the family that's divorced. Sometimes it goes down three, four, five generations. Like, great-grandfather, they're divorced, and then the next generation, then there's a divorce, and then there's another generation, and then there's a divorce, and then there's another generation, and there's a divorce. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think those things happen? It's because something was opened up in the family line that the enemy got authority over, and it just kept passing on down the family line. You can see this with alcoholism and addictions and many other, uh, other um, mental and other struggles that we have each and every day. The Bible says that these generational curses can get passed down, even in, in mindsets. Talking about you have a family or a family member that's very critical or maybe pessimistic. They're always negative. And no matter how many positive outlooks you try to throw their way, they always find the negative. And it, and it doesn't matter how much you say, I'm never going to be like them, what happens? As you get older, you decide, you figure out, man, I'm a lot more like them than I thought. You're negative too. You're finding the critical, the negative side. You're, you're, you know, same thing with doubt and worry. We have all these different attributes that get passed down. And some of these are not as a result of our own sin, but of the sins of those before us. One of the areas that, that I, I struggle with is, you know, just real talk today is, you know, when I catch my kids doing something they shouldn't do, and I call them out on it, and then they lie to me, I'm like, so hurt. I'm like, why would you do that? I'm your dad. Don't lie to me, you know? And, and it, just, it just gets to me. But when they say, hey, Dad, can you do this? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. Or, hey, you want to hang out today? Oh, yeah, I'll be there. Or they, they ask me questions, and I make a promise, and then something comes up. I run out of time. I forget about it. What have I just done? I just lied to them then. And if that goes unchecked, as a father, I open the door to the enemy to create an environment that lacks in character and integrity and holding to your word. And it just opens the door to pass down. So why would I expect my kids to walk in honesty if I'm not walking in honesty? Because I'm the one that creates the environment. And so now, as we're looking at the way the enemy 
it works as, as we identify these things. You know, many parents, they try to shelter their kids and protect them from all the brokenness in the world, the brokenness outside the world, and even the brokenness in their own home. They're not even honest about their own struggles with their kids. But what they're doing is they're actually pointing to the speck in their kid's eye and refusing to deal with the log in their own eye, saying, I'm going to keep you from doing my mistakes, and so I'm going to jump on every time I smell something close to what I used to do in you, but they've never con- like fixed it in their own selves. And so all they're doing is avoiding the problem, which is the doorway in their own life to what the enemy has authority over in their home. And so what happens is that we need to close that door in our home, in our lives, those that have authority, so that we can then free the next generation. This is the way the enemy works. Sinfulness in others can open the door to the captive. Fear, post-traumatic stress, you've gone to war and you see some stuff that can open a door. You didn't do it, but you were there. It caused it. So many things can happen. The enemy can use against us in our lives, and we can become a captive to his power and authority. But praise Jesus, he was anointed to set the captive free. Number two is deliver the blind. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul tells the church of Corinth, says people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them. They can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. What is he saying? He's saying if you're not a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. There are things that are true in the spiritual realm, things about God you cannot understand because it requires the Holy Spirit to open them up to you. There are things in the spirit, there are things of truth of God you cannot understand without first placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he gives the reason why that there are people apart from God are blind to the truth. He says, Satan, who's the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is in the exact likeness of God. Before becoming a believer in Jesus, accepting him as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you are a slave, you are a slave to the power of the enemy, who has wielded his power in the earth to blind you, not just physically, but spiritually to the things of God, which is why you don't go pursue God. God has to come pursue you. You don't go looking for God. God comes looking for you. And he draws your heart to himself. Something happens when you place your faith and trust in Christ. When you say, you know, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize what your word says. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to make you my Lord. Not only do you become born again, but Jesus in John 8, 30, 32, he says, many who heard him say these things believed in him. And Jesus said that to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. If you remain faithful to my teachings, you will know the truth. And the truth will what? The truth will set you free. It says, when you place your faith in me, you become my disciple. You become faithful to my teachings. You're, you're putting faith in the word. You're going deep in the word. That truth is going to bubble up in you, and it's going to begin to deliver you from the spiritual blindness that you were born into. It's going to set you free. You'll begin to see your life in this world and what and matters of the spiritual world in new and powerful ways because you will not be blind anymore. You'll have the eyes of the Lord, the light of life. Number three, it's the bruise. This word bruised in the original language means to tie or to bind with cords, beaten down or oppressed. These are people who got into oppression through their own sin, through decisions that they made themselves. They cho- they're the ones who got into their own mess. They chose not to forgive someone who offended them, so they got locked in a stronghold of bitterness. Or they chose to click on the Internet, and now they have an addiction they can't shake. They chose to drink alcohol to meditate, m- medicate their emotions, but now they can't stop tipping the bottle. They chose to obsess about their appearance, but now they can't stop modifying how they look, even starving themselves or stuffing their face. They chose not to trust the Lord with all their heart and surrender control of their lives to him. So now they're bound in worry, fear, and anxiety. They chose to let the opinions of others determine their value. And every rejection now adds to their depression and inches them closer to wanting to take their own lives. Even for those who, through their own sin, either through an action or inaction, by not submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, even for those 
There is something God has promised. Romans 10, 13. He says this. Read this with me. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That word saved is also translated delivered. Whether you're blind, captive, or in prison, beloved, there's hope for you. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus came to open your eyes. Jesus came to make the way available to save those who were lost. When it comes to spiritual warfare, though, many of us focus really on just a couple of avenues. As we're talking about wrestling with the enemy, we focus on the personal side of walking with the Spirit through inner healing or a process to bring about spiritual cleansing we call sanctification, a process of realigning ourselves and our lives with the Word of God. Um, and other ways we look at spiritual warfare is a lot of times we think about Hollywood's favorite horror movies. They talk about, you know, ghosts and goblins and all these things. That's what we think about. And some of that may be true. Most of it's not. I will tell you this. If you're going toe-to-toe with the enemy, where Jesus is Lord and the Spirit is in the room, there is no fear. There's absolutely no fear. Because why would you be afraid when you're on the winning side? There's no fear. There's nothing to fear. God's not given us a spirit of fear. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, we tend to be very nearsighted and miss the bigger picture of what God is doing It's not just he wants to deliver you and get you problem-free so that you can have a problem-free life. We know that that's impossible in this broken world. But much of the view we have in spiritual warfare comes from a defensive posture. What I mean is we think we're always on the defense. Like we always need to be looking over our shoulder for when that little red guy with the pitchfork is going to jump out and get us. You know, we're just moseying on down our lives and, oh, so, little devil. You know, you got to fight him for a second. Okay, I got him off. Now I can just mosey on. You know, we kind of have this defensive posture about spiritual warfare. The life group that's meeting on Wednesday nights at the Sovas is talking about the armor of God. If you haven't come, I suggest you go. There's still time to catch up. The The studies are online, so you can catch up at home and then and um, meet with the group. It would be very well worth it. But the subject of the armor of God, I think, is where we get this idea uh, often that we're just playing constant defense to the barrage of the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, here's what Paul says to the church of Ephesus. He says, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. So as we read this, we're like, okay, there's going to be a time of evil coming. I need to have this armor on so that when it comes and and I get in the battle, I, I can defend myself, and then when it's over, I'm still standing and and I survived. We kind of get this picture in our minds. But this is not really what I believe he is revealing to us. The Spirit of God is revealing to us in this picture. The view of the Christian life is not one of defense. What we miss in this passage is the deeper truth, is that we're not just moseying along, getting caught in these skirmishes with the devil, in this wrestling match now and again. But what we are as the church of Jesus Christ is we are caught in a continuous strategic war and the armor is given to us so that as we wage righteous warfare, when the dust settles, we're the ones left standing and not the enemy. That it's not that we're just minding our own business and one day the enemy is going to attack so we need to be ready for it, is that we are constantly engaged in battle, a strategic battle, And that when the enemy puts up resistance, it's him who's defeated and us who is left victorious. You see, the devil is not trying to come into our territory to take us down. Because Jesus has rescued us out of his. Colossians 1.13 says he, meaning Jesus, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. When we're born into this world, we're born into the kingdom of the enemy. We were slaves to sin, blinded by his power, and Jesus rescued us and pulled us out of his kingdom and placed us into the kingdom of Almighty God. Seated us in heaven in the heavenly places. Before Jesus, we were slaves to sin. James 3.15, he says, Jealousy, selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. These 
things that we wrestle with, these unpleasant attitudes, emotions, ideas, thoughts, feelings, these things we wrestle with that we can't seem to escape that are destructive in our relationships, they're not from God, they're from the enemy. And we were born into this world with these negative emotions and thought patterns that come from not our Father in heaven, but the one who rules over the earth. They're demonic. What is natural to man is unnatural to God. If we're thinking like Jesus, if we're not thinking like Jesus, then we're thinking like the devil. Think of Adam and Eve. Before sin entered into the picture, Adam and Eve were completely perfect. They had no sin. Adam never lost his temper. Eve never bickered at her husband. Adam never forgot to take out the trash. And Eve never complained about it. There was no sin. There was no selfishness. There, there was nothing that created contention in the relationship. When Satan got in the mix and they chose to align themselves with the enemy, not with God, then the knowledge of good and evil came into the picture. And not just the knowledge of it, but the experience of it. And the Bible tells us every time we sin, we feel the sting of the enemy. We feel the sting of the devil. The enemy opposes God in every way, which is why as believers we're called to renew our minds to the truth, not to think like the devil, but to have the mind of Christ so that we can reveal God's glory throughout all the earth. And the temptations the devil is focused on getting us to agree with and what he is uh, selling is to give him greater leverage in our lives and in our relationships. But what Jesus has done as, as he came, as he died on the cross, he rose from death, offering us salvation, as he has saved us, delivered us from the enemy's kingdom, and he has placed us into his kingdom. It's like a refugee, if a refugee from another country. He comes into America seeking solace because of the persecution from his home country. It'd be, like, it'd be like that, except being instantly made a citizen of the United States. Refugees that come here aren't instantly uh, given citizenship. They have to go through a process. But for us, the moment we come out of the kingdom of darkness, we become citizens of heaven. And if, and if you think about this, this circumstance, imagine if you're in a country, if our country was at war, but let's pick, let's say China. We're at war with China. That seems to be in the news right now. Let's say we're at war with China, and you defect America to go to China, and you don't just go there to, to hang out, but you become part of the upper echelon of their military and begin fighting against America. Would Americans call you a hero? No. What would they call you? You'd be a traitor, right? We left the enemy's kingdom, joined the kingdom of his arch rival. We're seated in the place of honor and power with the one who's in command, given authority, and then sent back into the kingdom to fight against the one in whom we used to obey. We are a traitor to the enemy kingdom. And if he didn't have enough reason to hate us, Matthew 24, verse 9 says, you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because why? Because you are my followers. Jesus is saying, this enemy you have, he's not nice. He hated you before. He really hates you now. Why? Because you're my followers. Think about this. Why do peace-loving, generous Christians become targets of persecution and hate all over the world? It's because we're hated for being his followers. The one who rules the world hates the one who now has conquered it. And we've been left to engage. So not only are we traitors, but we have not been taken back to our new home to live in comfort and safety. We've been left in enemy territory by the Lord of Heaven's armies to continue the fight against Satan on his own turf. So the church is not fighting from a defensive position. We've been strategically placed in enemy territory on offense to take the fight to him. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but what? To bring a sword. And not a sword like humans use, but the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The weapon that's powerful to tear down strongholds. 
and to set captives free. Jesus came to bring this sword because it was time for a new strategy, a new way to fight against the devil. Matthew 11, verse 12 says, From the time John the Baptist was preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people have been attacking it. John came to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus came to carry on the message. And Jesus is saying here, since John began preaching, the kingdom has been forcefully advancing, which means we're not on a retreat. We're not just hanging out waiting to be attacked. We are taking the fight to the enemy. We are marching forward as soldiers in the kingdom of heaven. We are fighting as the Lord's army. The kingdom of heaven is revealed in God's people. And if we, as we live on mission for the kingdom, it will continue forcefully advancing, but not through military might. It advances through spiritual power, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And not in holding on to our lives, elevating our pride, and becoming great in the eyes of men, but through love and self-sacrifice, becoming a servant, turning the other cheek, unlimited forgiveness, loving and praying for our enemies, doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It flips the enemy's kingdom on its head. In this world, it says you must become great in the eyes of men to be something, and God says, no, you must become nothing to become something. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The greatest among us must be the greatest servant. The world says and evolution tries to teach us it's the strong that survives. But Jesus declared the meek will inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. And so as we are coming into the world, we are coming and we are advancing the God's agenda on the earth. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says now i say to you that you are peter which means rock but upon this rock i will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it this is a well-known passage of scripture here he's talking to peter about who do people say that i am and peter said you are the christ the son of the living god and jesus says you are right and that statement is the foundation of what i'm going to build my church upon and the gates of hell or the powers of hell will not prevail against the church. This phrase, powers of hell, can also be translated as gates. Gates of hell, or the gates of Hades. And many will point to this definition of death, the gates of death, or the gates of hell, will not prevail against the church. And what this really tells us is really two things. One, the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, if he lives in us, at the right time is going to raise us from the dead. Death has no power over us. But this word gates or powers of hell or gates of hell, that word hell was not originally interpreted as death or the grave. It was originally interpreted as the name Hades, also associated with the god Pluto in the Roman pantheon, who was the god of the lower regions called Orcus or the netherworld, the realm of the dead. The word death and hell came much later. So as Jesus is saying, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. What he's telling us is that first, gates, that's not an offensive weapon. Gates are designed for one of two things, to let people in or to keep people out. The gates of Hades, it's a defensive structure. And these gates will not prevail against Hades, the power of Hades. Who is that? It is the God of death. Who is that? That's the enemy. That's Satan. So what Jesus is telling us is he's telling us, I'm going to build my church in the power, every defensive strategy, every structure, every point of resistance, everything the enemy has as the church is on offense that battering against the defenses of the enemy, the enemy will not stand. The gates of Hades will not stand against the church. None of the descriptions of the church of Jesus Christ are defensive. They're all offensive. You have armor not to defend, but to go on to the attack. That's why God says, I'm going before you, and I'm your rear guard. You don't need anybody covering your back because I got your back. You will not retreat because we're only going forward. Overwhelming victory is ours. In Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 57 says, O death, 
Where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are victorious. Every scheme of the enemy against your family, every scheme of the enemy against your life, against your happiness, against your joy, against your blessings, these schemes fall flat in the name of Jesus. To the power of God. Moreover, in Revelation 12, 11, the picture of the victorious church in heaven, it says, they have defeated him. Who? They've defeated the devil. How? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of Jesus was poured out to break the power of the devil. He has no power now except that which we give him. The devil's defeated. The blood has been poured out. And our testimony that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God Raises us up to victory. What else they said, but they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So we defeated the devil by the blood of the lamb in our testimony. But how did these believers not love their lives so much that they were not afraid to die? First John tells us in first John 4 that fear is tied to lacking an encounter with God's unconditional love. Perfect love casts out all fear. But secondly, it's because they stopped thinking like the devil and started thinking like Jesus. I'm not on defense. I'm on offense. They started thinking that those that hold on to their life will lose it, but those who give up their lives for the cause of Christ and the gospel will find it. They began thinking and believing that the greatest prize they can shoot for was heaven, and so they invested everything, wealth, resources, they sacrificed comfort, popularity and acceptance in the world to acquire it they understood that the only path was jesus and then when we come into a full and complete surrender to god's will we find true freedom and we become a force the enemy can never conquer so the battle has been won though the war is not yet over and quickly i want to show you in ephesians six twelve, as we are marching forward as we are on the offense, not on defense, as we are taking names, winning battles, not running and hiding, the three realms that we are to be fighting in. There are three enemies that Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that reveal three realms the church is supposed to be fighting in. And I believe the reason why we've not gotten leverage or uh, uh, impact in the community like we have, not just here, but all over the world, is because we've not been fighting in all three realms. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. There are three realms the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be fighting in, and it's revealed right here in the three enemies that we can look at. Number one, we'll look at them according to rank. We'll start with the the weak ones first. Number one is the evil spirits. Evil spirits, this is the Greek word pneumatikos. Say that three times fast. No, just kidding. Pneumatikos. These are enemies literally translated as relating to the human spirit, rational soul, or as part of the man which is akin to God and serves as a human instrument, or belonging to a spirit, or being higher than man but inferior to God. What is he saying? These are personal spirits that attack the mind, the will, and the emotions that come against us. These are the things we wrestle with every day of our lives. These are the ones that we see when we go to a place that's supposedly haunted and they, they pop out or you have something show up in your house or, or all the stuff that you know, distracts us through the things that whisper in our minds to try to get us to believe lies and tell us things about ourselves that are not true. All this stuff that we battle each and every day that we see or primarily focus on are the evil spirits. These are the ones that we are to uh, be, that we wrestle with, but also are to be warring against. These, in Ephesians 6, 18, is the reason why Paul told the church, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion, stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for believers everywhere. There is not a person here, not a believer in Christ, that will not fall under personal spiritual attack. It's every day in little and strong ways. Sometimes you'll enter seasons where it seems like attack is, attack is everywhere. Sometimes it'll feel less and less. But every day there's something coming against you. Why? You're in a war. 
You're in a war. We all face personal attack, but that's why we're here together, is to help fight for and with one another. Through intercession, prayer, prophetic words, confessing our sins one to another and praying for each other, we are fighting these personal foes to break free from the chains that they put on us, either because of our own sin or the sins of other people. So we can not only live free, but help others find freedom. So we have personal foes. Number two, the word power. Somebody say powers. This is the Greek word exousia. It means the power of choice, liberty of doing as one pleases, the power of authority or influence or the right of privilege. These are cultural foes, cultural forces. The first were personal. These are cultural. These are the ones that run the culture. These are the ones that have influence over everything that we see. 1 John 2.16 says, The world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. There is an influence and a power running the culture that is hell-bent on getting us to pull away from what God wants for our lives. And God wants good and not disaster to give us a future and a hope. And the enemy wants to do nothing but steal, kill, and destroy. And so every enticement, everything he can put before us is to lead us away from what God wants to do. And our, the church at large has had a head-in-the-sand approach to culture in many ways. We've been cr- even created subculture. Like, like it was too worldly to go to Woodstock, so we created our own Christian version, and we called it Godstock. Right, right? We'd, we, we didn't have musicians that were really good enough to make it onto the radio, and so we created our own Christian radio. You know, we created a subculture so that we could come out from among culture and be separate from culture, and at the same time, we didn't even impact culture. We didn't have an influence. We let the world drive us out of politics, out of schools, out of the law, out of popular music, out of art, out of entertainment, and we created subcultures where we could hide and feel comfortable and safe. And as long as we had our WWJD bracelet on and our Christian bumper sticker on our car, we felt like we were doing something. And we've limited the ministry of the church, the impact of the church historically, to what happens in the four walls of the church gathering, rather than recognizing we're not on defense, we're on offense. We're to go on the attack. God has put us into culture, not to be changed by it, but to change it. What's interesting, in the book of Zechariah, Israel was overtaken by some enemy nations. And God prophesies about some deliverers that would come deliver Israel from these nations that were dominating them. And in Zechariah 1.18 through 21, it says, I lifted up my eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four what? Four Four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? Like, you got these leaders, these nations that have risen up and they're dominating us, and you send us craftsmen. What what are these guys going to do? Here's what God says. He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, the leaders, so that no one raised his head. And these, talking about the craftsmen, have come to what? To terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Horns in prophetic language talk about leaders of nations so here these nations have come we have these leaders dominating judah and god sends not military men but craftsmen to deliver the nation i wonder how many people have overlooked the impact that god could do in their lives that god could do in their place of business in their work or in their culture because the only place they thought they could do ministry was in the four walls of the church. But the church has made people who are gifted in the marketplace feel like there's no place of ministry for them because they're outside the walls and not inside. When really the truth is the marketplace is their ministry. You see, where pastors have no influence, craftsmen do. Craftsmen do. We look at the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prayed that heaven would come to earth, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and it's well documented that the people that have the greatest influence on the culture are the artisans and the craftsmen, the media personalities. Malcolm X is credited to say 
that the media is the most powerful entity on earth. They have the power to make the innocent guilty and make the guilty innocent, and that's power because they control the minds of the masses. Who runs the media? Runs the culture. And so far, the enemy has been over the media. The enemy is a propaganda expert, and he excels at deception, and he controls the media. And what I believe part of the deliverance God wants us to bring is deliverance to the culture and that he is raising up spirit-filled, bold witnesses of Jesus that rather than trying to make a name for themselves on, on YouTube or make a name for themselves in the world, that they want to lead in love to impact the lives who already have names so that those who already have influence can use their influence to influence the world and lead it away from leading the nation to think like the devil and lead it into living and loving like Jesus. See, when the culture thinks like Jesus, we'll see things on earth as it is in heaven. Number three, we have rulers and authorities. Cosmokratos. This stands for the devil and his demons, the ruler of the age. Satan is the ruler of this world. And again, as we're talking about spiritual warfare, it's not defense, it's offense. And Satan, who is the god of this world, has been running the world like he owns it. But Jesus, when he conquered death and hell, he said, all power and authority has been given to me. This place, I own it now. I own it. It's mine. And then he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore what? Therefore, go. Therefore what? Go. Therefore, go. Therefore, go. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this. I am with you even to the end of the age. In this time, the, the nation of Rome was very well known for Romanizing every culture they dominated. Wherever they would conquer, they would leave dignitaries there to transform the culture from what it was into Roman culture. And what Jesus is doing here, he's telling his disciples, I'm not letting you be on defense. I'm sending you on offense. Go and make disciples. Go and teach the gospel. Go and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And wherever you go, teach them to do what I've done. Teach them to do what I've taught you how to do. Live like you're in the kingdom. Christianize, kingdomize everywhere you go. The Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's so vitally important. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The gospel is what sets people free. It's what sets captives free. It's what opens blind eyes. It's what opens prison doors, the preaching of the shed blood of Jesus and the power of his resurrection. It's what declares via divine proclamation from on high that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who ask will be forgiven. All who seek will find. All who knock will have the door open. And God's plan is for us to go on the offensive into all the world, into every sphere, into the culture, into the media, into the marketplace, into every neighborhood, every tribe, every tongue, and proclaim the good news to set captives free. God's plan is not merely that America is filled with believers. In Revelation 7, 9, this is a vision of the end times before the throne of God. Here's what John reveals. He says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, a crowd too great to count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. God's plan, God's purpose for the church, God's ministry of deliverance is for us to go find refugees struggling in the enemy camps and convert them to citizens of heaven. And not just of one nation, but of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And as the church continues to be on the offensive against the enemy kingdom, more and more people will come to the saving faith and knowledge of God's Son. We have to stop taking a defensive posture. And we have to start going on the offensive. What's that mean? It means prayer is not enough. 
It means Bible studies are not enough. It means church services are not enough. We have to let what we believe become actually what we live. We have to capture a vision for our lives that's in step with God's vision for our lives. We have to decrease so that he can increase. We have to die to ourselves so that we can come alive in Christ. We have to fight against the enemy's schemes in our own lives, and we have to war for one another. Like we see someone taken over in a struggle or in a fault. See, all of us fight personal enemies, but we can all also win spiritual wars. And I believe God wants us to be a place where we help people discover their divine purpose in Christ Jesus, their divine destiny. Because God wants us not only to find spiritual freedom for ourselves and our families, to break free from all these chains that hold us down, but he wants us to break the chains off our communities and our nation and the world. And the way we do that is help people find their purpose in Christ Jesus, help them walk in freedom, to rise as uh, spiritual warriors, able to discern and defend against the attacks of the enemy, and then to go where God calls and God sends them to repeat that process wherever they go. God has sent you to your office not to work in nine to five. He sent you there to be a witness for Jesus Christ. God has sent you to your organization not to volunteer, but to be a witness for Jesus Christ. God has sent you to your school not to be bored with science and math, but to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony gives us authority over every deception and everything the enemy would call or to throw at us. And I believe, beloved, that the call to deliverance is not solely focused on individual needs, but it has a ripple effect of global proportions if we would open our eyes to the greater story of what God is doing and what he initiated when he sent those first disciples out. God wants to bring heaven to earth. And his plan is to do it through us. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment as we go into a time of prayer. And I just feel like in this moment, we just need to pray and ask the Lord. We need to pray and ask the Lord to bring freedom to whatever is holding down our faith whatever is stifling his voice and his work in our lives, what's preventing us from walking in faith, what's preventing us from having a vision for our lives, what's preventing us from discerning his will, and that God would reveal the struggles or the things that we've allowed the enemy to gain leverage over in our hearts and lives, that we could surrender it again today, that we could offer forgiveness to those who need to be forgiven. We could repent of the things we need to repent of. That we that we don't just continue to sit in the mess that the enemy wants us to wallow in. That we repent of the lies we believe that says God could never use me, that I could never do that, I'm not qualified for that, I'm not, I'm not wealthy enough for that, I, I don't know enough for that. All these lies the enemy wants to throw at us. We just need to confess the truth. Lord, you have set me free. And so I'm not going to agree with the enemy and give him power over my life in this way. God, there's some things in my life that I've not been honest with. God, there's some things in my life that I've not addressed. There's some things that I know that I've been holding on to because I didn't want to surrender them because I'm still just enjoying them and I'm afraid if I let them go. That, that I'm not going to get to enjoy you know, life anymore. And all these things the enemy has twisted up in our minds, the way the world is allowed to define us. And today, like John, we just need to say, Lord, today I decrease. And today you increase. Today I put you in your rightful place as Lord of my life. Today I seek you first. Today, I begin pursuing your heart. Today, God, help me see everywhere I go. 
every group of people I hang out with as my personal mission field. And that you've called me to bring deliverance, to open blind eyes, to set the captives free, and to release those who are oppressed and bound down. Help me see my life as as significant as you've called it to be. Help me ignore the lies of the enemy that makes me feel like my life is not significant, that I have no purpose. I have a great purpose. I'm in the army of the Lord. We're involved in a military campaign to conquer enemy territory, to usher in the great revival, when all of the Lord's enemies will be under his feet. My purpose is to take as many people to heaven with me as I can. So God, I surrender to you again today. For the next few moments, I'm just going to call on us to receive this mandate of the Lord and to do business with our Father, to receive His grace and His mercy and find the power to be set free. If there's something on your heart you would like prayer for, a prayer team has come forward. There's teams on the side. I'll also be down front. But let's begin with us. No more playing defense. Only offense. Maybe you're here today and you don't read God's word. Maybe you commit to start reading his word every day. Maybe you don't spend time with him alone in prayer. Today you commit to begin praying and developing that relationship with the Lord. Whatever it is for the next few moments, we surrender again. And when we stand to sing, we'll be down here to pray for those who have needs. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you.